Let us pray. So, Father, we give you great thanks that Jesus Christ is the foundation of your church, that he is our sure foundation in all the storms of life. So now, as we look to your word, strengthen us and anchor us more fully to Christ. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again, everyone. Good morning to everyone watching on the live stream as well. We're so glad that you've joined us. I invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them, or um, there are some Bibles under the pews as well, and turn to um, our New Testament reading today from Philippians chapter 2. Continuing as we did last Sunday, looking at the book of Philippians. Today we'll be focusing on one portion of our New Testament reading from Philippians chapter 2. This passage this morning that we heard read is, I believe, one of the richest passages of Scripture in all of St. Paul's letters, and far too much to unpack in just one sermon. So today I'm focusing on verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, verses that sometimes understandably are neglected to focus on the verses that follow. The central focus of these four verses is the corporate aspect of conducting our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Conducting our lives together, together as the people of God in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as we start, it's important to bear in mind the singular foundational statement, which is the overarching key to everything we read in the first 18 verses of Philippians chapter 2 is verse 27 of chapter 1 of Philippians. If you back up there for just a second, where we read, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Did you hear that? In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, our unity as believers our shared, is rooted in our shared experience and ongoing reality of the salvation that comes through Christ alone and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And being unified as God's people is his will for us. It's God's express will in the local church and in the broader body of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches us. In Psalm 133, we read these words. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be as one, be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then 1 Corinthians, St. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment living in a manner worthy of the gospel, 
demonstrating to the world around us that first and foremost, we are citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom, something I've talked about a lot in recent months, mandates, it requires and demands that we strive for unity as God's people. St. Paul is writing to a church for a church for which he has deep affection. It is not one of those churches fraught with problems. He writes to the Philippians to exhort them and to further strengthen them rather than to rebuke them or send a corrective. And Paul's exhortation to them is based on the understanding that certain realities exist. And one of those is their shared life in Christ. And really to paraphrase what is being said here is since this is your experience together in Christ or since you know salvation in Christ as a reality, these are truths which you can hold on to as a lived reality and which you must embrace and live out. We too can stand on the reality of these truths in our lives, both individually and corporately because of the reality of our salvation our life in Christ. And there are four realities which we read here which assure us of this life in Christ and the fact that it is indeed real. Focusing on each clause in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. Four points. We know our salvation is real because Christ encourages us. The Philippians were an impoverished church in terms of temporal wealth. They were facing hardship and they were facing worsening persecution. And yet Christ was in their midst as a reality encouraging them. And this is really the foundation of St. Paul's appeal to them. They had the assurance that when nobody and nothing else could bring them hope and encouragement, Jesus Christ their Lord was indeed with them, always with them, even as he had promised. Brothers and sisters, God promises you and me this very same encouragement in Christ. Two of the key ways in which God encourages us by the presence is, excuse me, is by the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And secondly, through his word, the Bible. Romans 15, 4 reminds us, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We know this is salvation is real because Christ encourages us. Second, we know our life in Christ is real because Christ comforts us with his love. The love of Christ invigorates and motivates us to action. God's over unfailing love empowers us to be overcomers, to triumph in the midst of trial and turmoil in this life. In Romans 5, 5, we read that God says he has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God strengthens you and me. He strengthens us together through this incredible, unfathomable love he has for us. His unsearchable love for fallen, sinful people like you and me who are lost in rebellion and sin. Sin which constrained him to send his son to die for us. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God loves us. Let that sink down deep into your spirit for a moment. 
because experiencing the full measure of God's love is a reality rests upon how we respond to what Christ has done for us. And to those who are truly in Christ, he stands ready to pour out the fullness and comfort of his love in our lives. 1 John 3, 1 reminds us how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Karl Barth, who was one of the most prominent theologians of the 20th century, back in the 1962, did a um, lecture tour of the United States. And one of the places where he stopped was the University of Chicago School of Divinity, where he spoke in the Rockefeller Chapel, which is not really a chapel, it's actually a huge Gothic church. And following his lecture during the Q&A time, a student asked Bart if he could summarize his whole life's theology in a sentence. And Barth said the following, Yes, I can. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. God witnesses to our spirits that our life in Christ is real. He promises us that in his word and he comforts us with his love. Third, we know that this life, this salvation in Christ is real because Christ gives us fellowship with the Holy Spirit. It's essential that we understand that as believers we are blessed by supernatural spiritual fellowship which is made possible by the Holy Spirit of God who lives and dwells in every single one of us who is a believer, who is a child of God. And this fellowship of the Holy Spirit is also the basis of our unity and fellowship with one another as believers, as, as fellow believers and disciples of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we read, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 16, St. Paul writes, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Like the Philippians, we know that our salvation is real because of the witness of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God himself. And fourth, we know that this salvation is real because Christ gives us his tenderness and his compassion. In Jesus' earthly ministry, in Mark chapter 1, we read, and a leper, in Jesus' earthly ministry, in Mark chapter 1, we read, and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, did you hear that? Moved with pity, moved with compassion, Jesus, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And in Mark 6, 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. In Christ, brothers and sisters, we are called together to live out the same tenderness and compassion which Christ has shown us toward others. To those who are sick, to those who are hurting, to those who are hungry and those in prison, to the immigrant and the stranger in our midst, to those who are wounded and broken, to those who are bound in sin and without hope in this world. 
if we are Christ's. We are both recipients of his compassion and he fills us with this same loving compassion for others. We know that our salvation, our life in Christ is real. But God-breathed knowledge must also lead to godly action, which brings us to our second main point. We must show that this salvation, this life in Christ is real. So for the remainder of the time, focus on verses two through four. Paul writes to them, to the Philippians with the heart of a pastor. Basically saying, if your salvation is real, then make my joy complete by your manner of life together that shows that it is real. And here's how you do that. Or in other words, if it's true, then show it. And here's how you show it together. Living out our shared life in Christ. Living that out in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And hear me, brothers and sisters, this is not optional. This is a God-given, holy responsibility. Did you hear that? A holy responsibility that God has given us. And once again, Paul gives four ways in verses two through four of how we demonstrate our shared life in Christ together corporately. And what Paul says here may seem to overlap and be somewhat redundant. That's intentional. Both the Philippians and we must understand that as a church, as a community of believers, conducting our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel mandates godly unity. How does that happen? Well, first it happens by being like-minded. That doesn't mean that you and I don't think for ourselves. Hear me. It doesn't mean some forced coercive unity of blindly following a person. Rather, it means thinking together, thinking the same things. This is much more than a mere intellectual exercise because it encompasses the entirety of our being and includes our heart attitudes, our emotions, and our will. And it encompasses our attitudes toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called, hear me, because this is a holy responsibility. We are called to guard the godly unity of this local body. This is a God-given mandate to us as his people. And we must align ourselves with what God is doing. It's about God's call on this congregation. Aligning ourselves with what God is already doing and aligning his, ourselves with his heart for this community and for the world around us. Because disunity hinders the work of God. I know Pete Holman's going to have a comment about this. Um, if you are rare, American, if you're, you're rare, if you're an American who likes roundabouts. Now, the British invented roundabouts and have been using them far longer than we have. But back in the 1960s, they had issues with the roundabouts as well. And they figured out what was going wrong because originally with the design of traffic circles, Yes, it does. It cuts out millions of traffic lights and saves electricity. That's right. That's correct. <laughs> yes, I, I drove, was driving in England one time and um, made a wrong turn. And boy, is, is that scary. Um, but what was happening originally when they designed the roundabouts, everyone circled the same way, but 
the right-of-way was given to drivers who were entering the roundabout rather than those who were in it. And what happened was that um, in their effort to watch for their exit and avoid incoming drivers, when traffic was heavy, the entire circle, the entire circle um, became filled with traffic and choked off and would come to a standstill. And the British realized that they needed to reverse the right-of-way, giving priority to the cars that were already in the intersection, already in the roundabout. So entering vehicles had to pause to make sure there was space for them. That way, circulating drivers could exit safely rather than dodging incoming cars. And once they corrected this, the capacity of roundabouts went up by more than 10% and crashes went down by almost half. Now, I know Americans still took a lot of convincing because we didn't really seriously start introducing roundabouts in this country until the 1990s. So what's all this saying? That's true. In Washington, D.C., they did, but I always hated driving in Washington anyway. <laughs> they put the lights on the corners rather than the overhead where they're supposed to be to get your attention. Um, but the point here is that just like those roundabouts where the traffic that's in the circle and in the flow of things has the right of way, that's how we need to be unified with the heart of God and what God is already doing rather than coming in and forcing our way and disrupting the flow of God. We need to join what God is doing, get into the stream and the flow of what God is doing and join in rather than being disruptive to that work. Being like-minded so that we can minister to people with the love and the life of Jesus. Second, we demonstrate that our salvation is real by loving like Christ loves. First, that means truly striving to love each other. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 reminds us, Now concerning brotherly love, have no, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The old American folk hymn, We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and they will know we are Christians by our love. Some of you remember that hymn? Can we say that this is true about us individually and as a church? Will they know that we are Christians by our love? Do they know that we are Christians by our love? Are there other believers that you and I are not loving with the love of Christ? 1 John 4, 19-21 reads, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. How in the world will we ever truly love those in the world, people who may even hate us, who in many cases despise Christ and his truth if we can't love each other genuinely. We must love like Christ. First, by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then secondly, by loving the lost as Christ does. Do we love the lost? Are we filled with compassion? Do we act on that compassion toward those who desperately need to know Christ? My late friend, um, John Hobbs, who was a Methodist minister I've spoken of in sermons a number of times, Methodist minister, pastor, and also an evangelist in the Methodist church for many years, um, 
whose ministry profoundly impacted my life, used to tell the story, probably, this probably took place about 40 years ago now, of his associate pastor at the church where he was serving at the time. And that pastor felt very much compelled to reach out to a lady in their community who was a known prostitute. Everybody in the area knew she was a prostitute. She lived in a trailer park there in the community. So this pastor began to share the gospel and share the love of Christ with her. And he would see her out on the streets. He would go and he would talk with her and he would love her with a godly love. And out of the blue, lo and behold, one Sunday, she shows up at their church. And when she walked in the door, she said this, I want to talk to the pastor who loved me. She came to Christ. Um, she was radically transformed. There were deliverances. There was much assistance and, and counseling to help her work through all of the things that had been a part of her life. And John also then told the true story of a number of years later. She fell in love with a wonderful Christian man, both serving the Lord and married him. And she, she told John, she said, my wedding night because of the transformation God has done me was as if I'd never known another man. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, the one has died for all, therefore all have died. Is that kind of love true for you? Is it true for All Saints Church? Third, we demonstrate our salvation. We show that it's real by walking together. And this also connects back to chapter 1, verse 27. Standing firm in one spirit, hear this, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. We all have our views and opinions. Yes, we do. But we walk in unity. In a way that demonstrates Christ as Lord as the world looks on. Yes, we have our opinions. But walking together means we discern what God is calling us to corporately and how we are to move forward in that call, and we do it together. That means sometimes laying aside personal agendas. It means laying aside complaints even when things may not be done exactly the way you might think they ought to be done. Without backbiting or gossiping, or murmuring, or complaining. And I'm not talking here about blind, unthinking allegiance or some kind of ungodly control. I'm talking about godly unity, which is a choice. And it's a choice which we must continually make. You know, there are not many things which Satan uses more effectively in churches to cause discord than arguments over petty things which divide us and shift our focus to self-interest and personal agendas, and then which keep us from focusing on what God is calling us to, what he has called us to, to accomplish together in godly, God-breathed unity. It's kind of like a set of binoculars, and when the picture comes into focus, all of the distractions, all of the fuzziness goes away because God fine-tunes our vision together, and we all see the same thing with perfect clarity. True godly unity is not just a nice thought. It's a choice that involves our whole being. It's a choice we must, con must continually make together as the people of God. Excuse me. And then fourth and finally, 
we demonstrate that our salvation, this life in Christ is real through selfless humility, verses three through four. You see, selfless ambition, promoting our own interests, these things lie at the very heart of sinful human nature. And rather than reflecting the values of Christ's eternal kingdom, those kind of mindsets and attitudes reflect the values of the world around us. You see, God, the humility as demonstrated by Christ was viewed by the pagan cultures both in Christ's day and during St. Paul's ministry as weakness. Totally foreign to them and frankly, totally foreign to the second world, secular world we live in as well. But here's the problem. Tragically, it's even foreign among many Christians. In our world, far too many believers and far too many churches are self-absorbed and self-centered in incredibly troubling ways. And we're bombarded with this all around us. I was thinking through some of the old advertising slogans we've heard over the years. Even for fast food, like, have it your way. Or you deserve a break today. Or with all due respect, I mean, that's a show to those in the armed forces, the old army recruiting slogan. First, it was be all you can be. Then some of you may remember in the 1990s, the slogan shifted to an army of one. How absurd is that? Think about it. Whoever heard of an army of one and whoever heard of an army that was effective as an army of one? You see, our potential and our identity, both individually and corporately as a body of believers, are found in submission to Christ. Did you hear that? In submission to Christ. Not through self-actualization, not through some false feigned modesty. The word for selfish ambition in verse 3 can also very accurately be translated vainglory. And we see this around us all the time. And sometimes we even see it in the church. Vain glory, vanity, selfish ambition, insisting on personal agendas or personal needs that aren't healthy. And insisting on such things will destroy our unity and the credibility of our witness in the community. And when unrestrained, it destroys local churches too. Now, I'm not saying this because I perceive or discern significant issues of disunity here. I don't. It's always trying to creep in though. We must be on our guard at all times against Satan using this strategy to bring division and to discredit the name of Christ. We have wonderful godly unity that God has brought and continues to bring us here at this church. But like the Philippians, again, we must continue to be on our guard from these things creeping in unawares in very subtle ways that then manifest themselves and cause huge divisions. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, our life is real. We have real life, real salvation, eternal life, both here and for all of eternity, for all time. And because it is real, we are called and we are empowered by God to live the reality of this life out before and in a world which views to which these things are completely alien. Yes, it's completely alien to the world around us. And we are called to live out these truths in such a way 
because they are essential to the credibility of our witness and our ministry to those around us and all around the world and because it is essential to the vitality and the life of this local church which includes you and me. Let us pray. So Father, we are overwhelmed and awed by your incredible love for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we even reflect on the words of that child's hymn. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Father, you have promised us and you assure us in your word that you love us. You witness to our spirits by your spirit that we are your children. So Father, equip us and help us to live out the reality of this salvation through godly, Holy Spirit-breathed unity in our midst. Lord, may we choose to walk together. May we choose to walk together in alignment with what you are doing and join in with what you are doing in our midst and in our community. And we know that comes through submission to Christ. So Lord, May we yield afresh even today, fully submitted to our Lord together to your kingdom priorities that we could demonstrate the transforming power and the love and life of Jesus. That a world so desperate to know your truth, which is so countercultural, would come to hear and see and accept it. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.